0: The recent collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank continues to have massive repercussions beyond just the tech world. Over the weekend, the Swiss government brokered a deal that allowed a bank called UBS to buy out the smaller but globally and systemically important Credit Suisse Bank in an effort to keep the banking industry stable. Also, over the past week, lots of customers in the U.S. have been pulling their money out of smaller regional banks and putting it in larger ones, effectively reversing the trend which the Obama administration, after the last big crisis in 2007 and 2008, said was necessary to keep things on an even keel. What they wanted to see was money spread out across a system of banks and not just concentrated in too big to fail behemoths like Lehman Brothers, which collapsed in 2007, touching off the subprime mortgage meltdown. Well, Now, here we are again, and it's a cycle. Kent State University political science professor Dr. Mark Cassell says is going to keep repeating until we actually start regulating banks effectively. And he should know. Here's why.
1: That's what I do most of my research on is global and national banking policies. And I wrote a book on public banks in Germany that got published two years ago. It's called Banking on the State, Politics of Germany's Public Savings Banks. But I've written on the federal home loan bank system. And I actually wrote a book a while ago called How Governments Privatize, and it was about the Resolution Trust Corporation, the agency that was charged with taking over the savings and loans that had failed in the late 1980s and putting them in receivership and selling off their assets. So I feel a little bit deja vu to hear people talk about the FDIC and receiverships in the context of the financial failures of certain institutions, because I feel like I've been writing about that and thinking about that for over 30 years. So it's kind of funny.
0: And what was weird to me is after the savings and loan issue in the 80s, then we had the issue in 2007, yeah. 2008. And after there were reforms each time, and then some of the reforms got rolled back and then we had another problem. And so what I've been trying to figure out this past week is... Was there a problem because the reforms were rolled back and nobody was minding the store or or not?
1: I mean, there's no question. You have to appreciate the fact that the lending industry is by far the most powerful lobby industry in the country, bar none. It's much more powerful than the NRA, than the American Medical Association. And they're powerful for three reasons. One, they give a tremendous amount of money to policymakers, more than any other industry. Second, they have this weird, institutionalized, very privileged situation where banks are the ones who sit on the boards of directors of Federal Reserve banks around the country. So the, the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, of New York, of Boston, those are, these are institutions that have supervisory authority over banks. Well, the banks that sit on the board of the Federal Reserve are also banks. They're the very banks that are being overseen. No other industry does that. And then the third thing unusual is that there's this remarkable, unbelievable revolving door between regulators and the industry. So the back and forth between people who work for, you just have to look at, you know, Hank Paulson or Tim Geithner. I mean, these were all names that worked in investment banking for decades. And so that at the top also plays out of the middle. And so this is an industry that just has a lot of Power and influence in Washington, D.C. And before the savings and loan crisis, there was deregulation. Before the financial crisis in 07, 08, there was deregulation. There was an unwillingness to even look at the possibility of regulating derivatives. And then, yeah, more recently in the last four years, I think two years before Biden took office, the Republicans in the Trump administration decided that the rules of Dodd Frank should be revised and that banks with assets of 50 billion or more should not be regulated at the same because they were considered systemically important institutions. They were required to undergo very sort of more stringent stress tests and regulations. That was lifted to include only banks in excess of $250 billion. And so all these mid-sized regional banks were then sort of freed from that regulation. And that was done with the support and backing of the financial industry. And then, of course, you run into problems. I mean, the problem with banking is that if the federal government... If you have a situation where the federal government insures all the deposits, you create this enormous moral hazard, right? You you can either don't have insurance and you let basically customers, namely depositors, take on the responsibility of overseeing the place where they're putting their money. If you're not going to have that, instead you're going to have the government insure those deposits, then you need, you have to have very, very, very effective regulations. And we just don't. We just, we're constantly rolling back regulations. And I think each time we do, we pay the price. And it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone that Silicon Valley Bank and other banks have taken the fall. I mean, it's not surprising.
0: As I understand it with Silicon Valley Bank, they went for like nine months without having a risk management officer, which seems to me that that's kind of a basic thing that you would have somebody there kind of minding the store and making sure they weren't making risky bets with their depositors' money, which, I mean, that's pretty much what brought on the problems in 2007, 2008, is that these investment banks were making these kind of risky bets. Now, certainly they were doing it differently, you know, with the government bonds now, but it's still the same thing. Nobody was really watching to make sure they didn't have too much in kind of one category. And when that one category being (laughs) the government bonds lost a lot of value, then there they were.
1: Yeah. I mean, I do think the situation in more recent times is different than in 07, 08. I think the problem, at least in my view, the problem wasn't that Silicon Valley Bank necessarily made risky bets. I mean, they they really, as you say, they weren't especially risky. I mean, there are things that they could have done that might have mediated the risk that you could sort of say in hindsight, they should have done. But really the problem that the bank had is they just had a ridiculous number of uninsured deposits. And they had what the savings and loan era would have been called hot money. So You know, it was basically large sums, basically not individuals, not families, not normal people, quote unquote, startups that just had a tremendous amount of cash that they just parked in Silicon Valley Bank in checking accounts or other accounts. And the problem with that was that since they had such a small proportion of their funds that were not insured, that was problem number one. And then problem number two was, you know, you then had just a super large percentage of their deposits came from one industry. And that industry was very vulnerable to interest rate risk. So the tech industry, as it's kind of cratering or consolidating or or whatever, what happens is those startups, those companies, they start to burn through money. They start to burn through the cash that they have. And so suddenly, if you're a bank that relies almost exclusively on one industry, and that industry is sort of caving, and you don't have the cushion to take care of that, you're going to make decisions that are going to cost you a lot of money. And but I don't think that wasn't like the 2007, 2008, where the managers and the the stockholders got giant bailouts and made risky bets that they didn't understand. I don't think that was what was going on here at all. But it is the case that the regulators weren't paying attention. I think the number of insured deposits in that bank was like less than 10%. I think it was like seven to eight percent of insured deposits that should never happen in any bank that should raise a giant red flag and one of the primary anti-regulation leaders at the San Francisco Federal Home Bank was the bank president of Silicon Valley Bank who sits on the board of the Federal Reserve of San Francisco so i think that was what is happening but it really as i said it sort of underscores why regulation is so so important I mean, you can do other things. You could create other kinds of accounts. The Federal Reserve could open accounts for people. You could have a public bank like the Postal Service or the Federal Reserve where people could just put their money in in there if they just want a savings bank. But if you're not going to do any of those things, then you need effective regulation if you're going to offer that insurance. And we didn't.
0: That was Kent State University political science professor, Dr. Mark Cassell. You can find his books on the banking industry, Banking on the State, The Political Economy of Public Savings Banks, and How Governments Privatize, The Politics of Divestment in the United States and Germany, on Amazon.com. And I'm Jean Destro. That's it for now. Stay happy and healthy, and we'll see you again next week. That was This Week in Tech with Gene Destro. Tune in next week for more tech news on 93.5-1590-WAKR and WAKR.net.